Hi, it's Joanna Oki here and welcome back to Talking Law, a podcast brought to you by our commercial practice, Aspect Legal. Now, joining us for today's episode is Sam DeLongis, founder of the IT consulting firm Trilogy Resources, which he built from the ground up into a company with more than 300 staff and that he eventually sold to a listed company. Sam and I first met in his office in Perth about five years ago when I worked with him on the sale of Trilogy. His strong work ethic and his leadership skills left an indelible mark in my memory. So I thought it would be great for us to sit down and chat with Sam to learn from his experience of building up a business and weathering a few storms along the way, because I think this sort of experience is really useful for all business owners and managers to understand all businesses, hit points where things get tough, and it's really great to see what can be achieved if you can make it through to the other side. I had such fun recording with Sam because he has such an interesting story to share. And this episode is one of a number of episodes that I recorded with Sam. So at the end of this episode, I'll let you know where to go to find the others. But in this first episode, we start with a background. I don't usually include personal backgrounds of my guests, but in this case, I thought Sam's story was really useful to understand, as well as very interesting to hear. I personally found it very grounding. Sometimes business really feels tough, but Sam's story is such an excellent example of how riding out the tough times while staying true to your values can result in a business that thrives and, if you're like Sam, can provide incredible satisfaction. So, without further ado, here we go. listening to Talking Law, the podcast where business owners just like you discover how to avoid legal landmines and build value using smart legal tips. Join your host, Joanna Oki, as she cuts through the legal jargon and gives you clear and simple actionable legal strategies, which will get you optimal business results. Sam, thank you for coming onto the show. I have to tell you, I don't know if I've told you this before, but you are literally one of my favourite clients of all time. I, I really enjoyed working with you in your sales. So anyway, thank you so much for coming back to the show and thanks for sharing your story because I think you've got a great story about not, not just your business sale, which is essentially what we're talking about today, but also, I guess, your background. And I think maybe if you don't mind, I'd just like to start by touching on that because I recall conversations that we had where you talked about having grown up with hardship, having moved to Australia from Italy as a child. Maybe can you tell us a little bit about that? Absolutely, Joanna. And uh, let me tell you, pleasure to hear your voice and pleasure <laughs> to be talking to you after all this after all this time. Fabulous. <laughs> yeah, no, no problem. Our uh, our start, yeah, coming to Australia was yeah, it was it was very hard. My father sort of after we came in, well, my father came in nineteen fifty one, mm. so it's after the uh, Second World War, mm. and that was it was very tough for Italians as it was for a lot of Europeans after the war. 
And uh, my father made the decision that um, it was very difficult, literally, to put food on the table. We were living in a small village about 30, 40k east of Naples mm. and basically just self-sufficient. So he realised that there was going to be no future. He had five children and uh, he realised there was no future there. Just to give you an example, my two older brothers did three years of schooling from the ages of about six to about seven or eight. And then they were sort of ploughing the fields, wow. um, you know, to try to uh, put food on the table. So After it was very school. tough, and there was not going to be, yeah, wow, there was going to be, uh, there was going to be no sort of education. There was going to be no opportunity. So he had a sister who lived in Australia, and he had a cousin who was in Argentina, mm-hmm. and he wrote to them and asked if they would sponsor, because mm-hmm. that's the only way you could get here. Anyway, to cut a long story short, the sister here who was in Perth in Western Australia decided that she would uh, fill out the appropriate paperwork. So he, he had no money, so um, she uh, gave him the money for the boat fare, which was a 28-day trip um, on a boat. Wow. So he left uh, my mum. My mu- 28 days, that's wow. right. So he left my mum and uh, five children, so I was six months old when he left. He came to um, landed in Perth. The sister had a, a farm in um, a place called Bayswater here, a chook farm. He worked there for a couple of months, couldn't find work, you know, in Perth. Moved to a town called 2J, worked for some farmers clearing land with an axe and a mattock, mm. working on the farm, living in a tent for two years until he had enough money to pay back uh, his sister for the boat fare, wow. and then had enough money to get the eldest brother, who was 18, to come to Perth to help him. My brother came out another 28 days. They worked together for another two years, living in a tent on the land, clearing bush. In 1955, so four years later, my mum and the other four kids, and that's how I got to Perth anyway. Wow. <laughs> it's, wow. a, it's a very long story, but that's the background of how we got here. Wow. It's just, I mean, it's it's incredible, isn't it, to think about, um, I mean, you, you know, we live such a blessed life generally here in Australia. That's right. It's just, it's so hard to even contemplate that sort of journey. <laughs> four yeah, years. Yeah, it's very, know. four years to actually get the family here yeah. because we just didn't have enough money. It took that long to amass some money to get, to get my mum. And, of course, all the time sending some money back. So I think that's probably one of the things that makes me, very grateful and very grounded and sort of not forgetting. And, you know, look, for me as a kid, it was never a hardship because we always had food one way or the other. Mm. But, yes, it was a very, very different life that I enjoy and a lot of other people enjoy. Mm, mm. It's fascinating, you know, as you're talking here many times, I think, gosh, you know, it's um, it's a challenge being a uh, working mum, growing a business and having two young children, but that's <laughs> that's not, no challenge in comparison to the story you've no, just told, right? <laughs> no, no, and especially for my mum, you know, being back there with five kids, of course, yeah. dad is, you know, sending some money over because she had no other income. So, yeah, yeah but that's a fairly typical the story, I think, from most people who migrated in the 50s was mm. uh, is something similar to that. Yeah, very different to today. And so obviously then, you you know, you went to school in Australia and yes. then yes. when did you start your first business then and, and how did that all come about? Okay, okay. Well, I did all my schooling in the country and then we moved to Perth 
when uh, when I was about 15, 16, because my father, again, realised that there was not going to be any work in a country town. Mm. So um, I started off, I, I liked electronics. So I wanted to, in those days, this was early 60s, I, I had this thing um, about electronics. And the only thing that was electronics back then was uh, an occupation, I guess, called radio and TV technician. That really mm. was the only electronics. Uh, in the early 60s. There's no real computers here in Australia back then. Mm. So uh, when we moved to Perth, uh, I wanted to do something in that field. However, being a a dummy from the country, I didn't realise we got here in January in 67 and I didn't realise that the apprenticeships had all closed the year before. Uh So when I got here, when I got here, it was like too late to do that apprenticeship. So um, I ended up eventually doing uh, getting a job as an office boy where I thought I'd do that for a year and then apply the next year to do this apprenticeship. Mm. However, mm. by then I was about 16. I thought, oh, I'm just too old to start an apprenticeship now. <laughs> and I, <laughs> and I, so I worked for a company called Mount Newman Mining, which, which actually is BHP Iron Ore today. Right. And um, here, here in Perth as, as their first sort of office boy. And um, from there, I did a lot of night school, some accounting courses and all sorts of stuff. Ultimately, from there, when I was about 18 or 19, there was an opportunity to – computing was only just starting in, in, um, in, in Perth and in Australia. This is probably getting to the early 70s. There's an opportunity to train internally. BHP had their own uh, training schools for computing. There was no really computer degrees back then. Mm. They had a program that if you sat for an aptitude test and you showed aptitude, that they would train you. Mm. And uh, I sat that aptitude test and was lucky enough to pass. And so I got into computing. Mm. So I actually worked um, in mining for a total of 22 years. Oh, right. Always it. Yes, yes. Um, always, always in computing. Ah. So I started in the early days, which was the very early seventies, and mm. uh, I left. In so I had a very good career in computing, and I was mm. growing computing. You know, it was changing every year, so I was mm. actually growing with it. So it was wonderful. Mm. And um, then in '88 uh, was when I actually started uh, my business, mm. and that was in computing. But I'd had all those years in computing. Mm. And I figured that I was at the forefront of a particular technology that we were working on at the time. And I thought if I was ever going to leave, and the reason for leaving at the time, by the way, I was very, very happy mm. uh, because there was something new happening every year and it was progressing. And so mm. it was wonderful. Um, the, the sort of work, the, the company's attitude towards doing work internally changed and they were going to start outsourcing things. And I thought at that point, um, my career wasn't going to progress the way it had the last 20 years. Mm. And um, contemplated that for a while. And I thought, if I stay here, sit in a corner, I'm just going to stagnate and I, I can't do this. And, and it wasn't an easy decision to leave. I actually ended up, uh, in the first instance, sort of going contracting, mm. um, which was risky. I had a wife and three children. But, mm. you know, I sat with my wife and told her what was going on. And I said, I just can't stay there. Mm. I've always been in a situation where we're always progressing within myself and also in knowledge. And Mm. and if you're in computing, you need to keep moving forward. So I made the decision to leave. And then from there, I started Trilogy with two other um, friends of mine who were in exactly the same area of specialisation. And and that's really really how we started. So Mm. So how old were you then? 
I was 37. 37. Okay. All right. And so, and you went into business at that point with, with two other partners. With two other partners, yes. Right, yes. okay. And did you have any staff when you first started? No, not at all. No, really what it was, the, the, the ideal at the time was really just to uh, try to keep ourselves in work yeah. and specialise in, in this particular product, um, which, was, which was a relational database, of a thing called DB2, as IBM's premier sort of database at the time. Mm. There was a transition happening around about 91, 92 actually, where people were going away from mainframes and going more into what we now know as things like Microsoft and SQL Server and Oracle and all that sort of stuff. So we had a decision to make uh, from this legacy systems to the newer technologies. And in fact, uh, my company, Trilogy, became the first Microsoft certified partner in Australia. Wow. Um, so we started, yeah, so we started, there's a whole sort of story behind how that came about as well. But But, you know, we we specialised in that sort of technology and that was a real big shift for us. Mm. Up to that point, we were really just trying to keep ourselves employed (laughs) and it probably, you know, and away from, like, to have some independence and to be able to work on sort of contract rates as opposed to sitting working on on salary. And my attitude towards that was that, I found that whilst I was working, you know, as an employee, you know, always been a you know very loyal employee and putting lots of time, a lot of effort. I found that you know the difference in getting pay rises at the end of the year, whilst I was always in the top ten within the company anyway, and mm. we're doing quite well. The difference between a guy that performed really, really well and a guy that performed badly was very negligible. Mm. And so I thought, you know, why I know that that I'm working harder than these guys and I know just from recognition Mm. that that I'm doing quite well. Why It's not proportional to how you get paid. Mm. So I thought, at least on my own, if I put the hours in and I put the effort in, if, if all it takes is to work harder and work longer hours, I'll beat these guys every damn time because I don't care about, <laughs> you know, putting in longer hours and put, because I do anyway. That's just me natural. Yeah. And yeah. I think anybody getting into business, I think, needs to understand, though, that they do need to put in a lot of effort and a yeah. lot of hours. And if that's foreign to you, then maybe you ought to think again. But if you know that you already do that, then I think it's a doddle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And do you think some of that work ethic came from some of the background that we've been talking about? I think so. I think so. I never thought about it at the time, but but I can tell you, I've often get asked, well, you know, what what motivates you or whatever. Never had any real motivations or ambitions as Mm. in, you know, I must have the best house in the street or or the big house on the hill. I never had any of that. my, My folks were always work hard, do the best you can do, work hard, do the best you can do, whatever that is. And, mm. and I have an attitude and I, and I say the same thing. It doesn't matter. Look, if you're digging a hole in the road, you know, try to dig that hole the best hole you can dig, yeah. you know, and there's a lot of merit. So I've just, that's the only principle I've applied mm. to, to anything that we do. I was never pushed. I never had any, you know, I'm not the, the third generation of people who have been doctors. And so mm. you've got to be a doctor to mm. keep up the family. I had nothing. I mean, I'm the first white-collar worker in my family. Yeah, so, right. um, you know, you just just do the best you can do. And that, that's all I've, that's all we've ever done. You know, and I've got to admit, I, there's no way that I thought I'd sort of end up in the situation where I am now, which we're extremely comfortable. But, 
But I was always comfortable and I've always been happy. I think that's the other thing. Yeah. I never felt that I was some sort of second grade citizen or anything or we're not Mm. doing as well as anyone else. Mm. Me and my mum and dad did incredible sacrifices, but we always had plenty of love and plenty of everything. So, Mm. Mm. yeah, it's a hard one. And then as you say, you know, I guess just talking about you being the first person within your family to be white-collar worker and then you grew this business to – you you had hundreds of contractors, right, but at the time that you sold out. So, you know, I mean, what an amazing success story. You really achieved an amazing business at the end of the day that um, you then got to sell, you know, <laughs> and now living That's the right, dream yeah. retired. <laughs> That's right. Ab- absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it, it is quite incredible. I mean, even even myself, sometimes I sort of pinch myself and think things, you know, have worked out really, really well. But, I mean, I never had the ambition, actually, I have to tell you, I never had the ambition that I was building a business to sell. Yeah, um, right. You know, I, I, my only, my only am- and I know the smart people will tell you always, too, if you're in business to do that. But that I only did that probably in a, about a year before I decided to sell. Mm. So I was never motivated by that. I was always motivated by just do the best the best you can do. And so, therefore, you know, if I'm in a business where we were doing, we had two sides of the business. One was software development, and one was IT recruitment. Mm. But on both sides, so the story was to obviously, as a measure of, I don't know if it's success, but as a measure of progress, if we were you know, um, had so many people on this year, then obviously we wanted X plus Y people next year. You wanted mm. to see some form of growth mm. so that you're going forward. Mm. And and so that's what motivated me. I've never been motivated by the money. I, mm. I And in fact, I would not pay my staff. We wouldn't, particularly on the recruitment side, you know, a lot of people have bonuses. Mm. I, I wouldn't do that. Um, mm. I didn't want them to be motivated by money. I wanted mm. them to be motivated by the idea we were in recruitment so i wanted the empathy to the client and to the candidate Mm. so that they weren't making decisions based on whether they were going to get an extra candidate on board this month so they could get their bonus because Mm. people do all sorts of stupid and desperate things Mm. i wanted them to do well we would have some soft targets on numbers Mm. and then if they did that then we'd have a salary review and they would get rewarded you know Mm. So the end result is the same, but I just didn't want their decisions to be based on the fact that they had to shoehorn in so many mm. candidates or so many people as a measure of success. So our mm. measure of success was never measured sort of on the dollars, but but on a growth path, you know. Mm. If we mm. had a 100 people this year, well, you know, it would be nice to get 120, 130 next year, mm. etc. So that, that was always my thing. So the focus was never actually on, on dollars. Mm. And, and it wasn't, yes. I just think that's, you, you know, it's such a such a great comment because there's a lot of movement around at the moment. I'm sure there probably always has been in business, but there's a lot of discussion around, you know, in terms of performance management by the use of bonuses and incentives and strong, you know, meeting of KPIs. But it's just, it's really yeah. fascinating to hear you talk about another way of doing it. Well, I think so because, look, people who are motivated are motivated most of the times more than just money or not just by money. They're motivated by opportunity. I mean, one of the biggest things, I think the biggest motivators that I've seen and I've experienced is that I don't believe in trying to, you know, ram a square peg into a round hole. Mm. So the way to motivate employees is to find out what they want, 
Mm. and where they want to go and how they see they want to progress. And then Mm. you genuinely help them to achieve those goals. Mm. Um, And and a lot of that is not, you know, obviously if they're doing well, they expect to get rewarded and get money. I mean, Mm. and and in the same token, you know, you're in business, you must make money. Mm. You know, you've got to make money for reasons other than, just personal sort of getting money. The, the idea is that if you if you don't make money, you can't afford to give people pay rises. Yeah. You can't afford to give people pay rises. Then you're not progressing. In the mm. end, no one's going to have a job. So mm. to to do all those things, and and you know, staff need to understand that that they need to be part of that formula. Mm. But the biggest thing is to is to find out what they want. And you know, particularly when they're young, mm. they want to know that they're progressing. They want to know that they're learning. They want to know they're earning a reasonable salary. Mm. Um, but but it's never just about the money. And I found what, what I'm saying is you can pay a guy and say, look, I'll give you an extra $20,000 a year, but you've got to work 10% harder. Mm. The reality is he won't. Mm. Uh, mm. You find a guy who's motivated because he wants to learn, he wants to do, he will work 50%, 100% harder. And, and whether you gave him, you know, 10000 or $5,000, you know, that obviously mm. he wants some reward, but he's not motivated by the money. And mm. so to actually think that you're going to motivate somebody who's not a hard worker, to mm. work hard because you're going to give an extra few dollars. It doesn't work. Mm. It mm. doesn't work. He'll just go somewhere. Else. He'll figure out another way of getting extra money and go somewhere else and just keep coming and leaving. You know, you you need to motivate people so that they feel that they are progressing within themselves. Mm. And if they are and they're doing the right thing and you're guiding them correctly, then they're making money, you're making money, and you can afford to give him some back. So, mm. that, yeah, look, I, that, that's just the way I see it. And it clearly, clearly yeah. it worked because my recollection well, is you did. had a, a, you know, a workforce that had been there for a long time. So clearly a loyal workforce behind you. Yes. Yes. Very, very stable. One of my star guys, you know, was, was a guy that, um, worked with me from, he was a computer science and engineering background uh, graduate. He had two degrees and first-class honours in both. Absolutely brilliant guy. Mm. He started the last one. He was 22, 23 years old. I think it was his first job and stayed with me right um, till the end wow. uh, when, when I sold. Yeah, and he was a wonderful guy. And that, that's probably my biggest achievement. He could have left me 100 times and probably got at any stage of the game, you know, $20,000, $30,000 a year, probably more salary at any time. Yeah. And he never did. And, yeah. and I think it was a mutual respect thing. I was able to provide him, and especially you know, a bright young bloke, to be able to grow with such a small company when we started, mm. to, to always be given opportunities and to be giving, you know, opportunity to grow. And that's probably my biggest achievement, I think, for mm. to have someone that I was able to have. And he was extremely loyal, and he is one of the guys I'm talking about. He wasn't motivated by money. He, yeah. he was bright. He wanted to do things, and we gave him those opportunities to do it. And, mm. you know, I really struggled to make sure that I was paying him the most that we could possibly pay him. Mm. And and I knew full well that some of the large, you know, very, very large corporates could have easily paid him $20,000 or more. Mm. He, mm. And, he, and he knew it too, but... You know, he was he was extremely happy. So, yeah, I think that's probably my biggest achievement as far as workforce goes. Let's take a short break. When we come back, Sam talks about two particularly difficult times in the business and how he managed through these storms. And that's next. I'm Joanna Oki and you are listening to Talking Law, a podcast brought to you by Aspect Legal.
you're a professional involved in business sales and acquisitions activity, for example, a broker or an accountant, or if you're a business owner looking to expand by acquisition, or if you're building a business to sell in the future, check out Talking Law's sister podcast, The Deal Room. Together with Talking Law, these are now two of the top legal podcasts in Australia. The Deal Room contains information, interviews and tips and tricks relating to the world of business sales and acquisitions. We love this area of law and thought it was high time we took some of our specialist knowledge and shared it in a commercial context rather than just talking about legal stuff all the time. We release new episodes every Tuesday for The Deal Room. You can listen to our episodes on www.thedealroompodcast.com or subscribe to The Deal Room Podcast on iTunes to be the first to know when a new episode is out. Earlier, we got to know Sam, how his family came to Australia from Italy after the Second World War how he started as an office boy in a mining company and worked his way up in computing at the forefront of an evolving information technology industry at the time. Sam also talked about the motivation behind his strong work ethic and his take on how to motivate employees with growth, not dollars. Now, let's get back to our conversation with Sam and talk about the downtimes he's had to face in his business and how he managed to weather those storms. Sam, do you remember any particularly hard times for the business? I mean, I I guess there must have been serious challenges over all that period of time. Absolutely. There was two very specific ones. One was around about 92, mm. 92, 93. There was a very um, a serious downturn here in Perth and I think probably over Australia. Sydney might have happened a couple of years earlier. Mm. But here was about 92, 93. In fact, um, this was – so we'd started in 1988. In 92, 93, the three of us we had – I'd say there was the three partners – we were all out of work for approximately 12 months. You know, wow. that was, yeah, it was extremely, extremely difficult. And, uh, and everyone was out of work. Um, it, it was very, very tough just to make things work. I mean, I was spending still a lot of time in the office. Um, and it was one of those things that it's very difficult for some people to understand, um, you know, that you've got to go in every day. And people say, what are you going in every day if there's no work? Well, because um, if you're not searching for work, you don't know when the drought's going to break and mm. you need to be there and you don't want to miss the opportunity. So, look, mm. that was tough. Did you have other staff then? Because oh, it sounds like that was about four years into this business. Yeah, yeah. No, we didn't really have any staff at that point. It was right. really just the three of us, but it was just trying to keep ourselves alive yeah. in that time. And the only thing that was actually doing it was, I'd started, it just came, the actual recruitment side of it, I was never, look, a recruitment person. Mm. And that just happened by accident. I mean, I was, I was a database administrator specialising in this uh, DB2 software. What happened just by chance was that people would ask me when they had a difficult candidate to find and they, they were really happy with recruitment agencies Mm. and because I was in the business and I knew and they trusted me Mm. I found myself sort of telling them where to go what to do eventually anyway what happened was I decided that 
a few of these people are friends of mine, and they they said, look, well, if you found me the job, Sam, well, why don't you look after me and pay and all that sort of stuff? And I mm. reluctantly did that. <laughs> so I had a few. I, well, well, it was reluctant because it wasn't an area that I particularly wanted to go in. Oh. And I'd seen some horrible examples of some friends of mine who had gone into recruitment. Mm. and all the horrible and dodgy things that they did to mm. candidates. Mm. And so I never never really wanted to do that. So I, I said to my mates, I said, look, I'll do it, but we need to be upfront about what we do and how we do it. And, I'm, you know, I need to be able to, you know, there's payroll taxes, there's insurances. So I need to take a certain percentage and the rest I'll give to you. I'll fight for you and get you the best rate. So I did that. For, mm. So the bottom line was I had about half a dozen guys on my books. Mm. That was really the only thing that was keeping us alive. Right. But it was it was still very, very tough years because whilst I was doing that side of the business, obviously I was sharing it with my other two partners. Yeah. And they were all out of work as well. And, and it was at the point where, you know, my wife and I spoke. Um, I was getting harassed by some recruiters in Canberra. Um, there was an opportunity there for my skill set. Mm-hmm. And I was probably at one point almost, you know, a couple of weeks away from having to leave the family and, and go and take on that contract and I was so, so reluctant. Um, I can remember having having conversations with my daughter who uh, was about eight or nine years old at the time and then trying to tell her at night when I was kissing her goodbye, goodnight at, at the, before bedtime to say, look, daddy might have to go away for three months at a oh. time. Sort of, yeah, and seeing her cry and bawling her eyes out and oh. I just thought, no, and you're such I a family guy as well, Sam, right? I know, so I can I just know, I, I can know. feel the pain of that time. Yeah, absolutely. And that that was a real horrible time, you know. And as it as it as it worked out within about a month or six weeks after that, I, I managed to, to get an opportunity um at uh, a contract at the water authority here in Perth and that sort of got me back on the road. So mm. So that was a you know extremely tough time that not just only involved me but involved my wife and, mm. and my children you know so that was that was that. I think in in hearing your story now, I think it's just so important for business owners because I, I think in any business there's times where things get hard you know there's crunch times yeah. that occur and it's yeah. just so important. I know a number of businesses at the moment who are going through some tough periods that have come off the back of growth and, you know, now there's some retraction and issues going on. But I think it's just so important that people can hear that it's almost universal among business owners. Stuff happens and almost everyone gets to that point where they're against the wall. But if you can Mm. just hold on, you know, if you're in the right business, you you know, it's not always the right business. Oh, I think that's the point. The point is that, you know, at that, at when when those things happen, well, first of all, this this was really emotional because it was the sort of thing that, you know, look, if it's just financial hardship, that's one thing, mm. but when it when it actually impacts to something like this, where it then comes into the family, and invariably it will, and if you've got mm. a tight knit family, it does. Mm. But that also, you know, it also, I think, I was not unaware of this when we first decided when I first decided that of starting Trilogy. My wife and I sat down and and we we looked at. And she's always supported me in everything I've done, and I think that's the other key mm. to success is to mm. have a successful partner. But mm. um, that that you know, whilst my wife was always at home with the children, I mean, she I would not have been able to do any of this without her support because mm. I was working long hours and a lot of hard effort. But it was always for you know the benefit of the family, and we've never lost 
we've never lost that. Mm. But you, you do need to realise you need you know when you start a business you need to look at it. And we did, and we said, look, you know, look, the, the best case scenario is I get paid a bit more, and there might be opportunity to do some things. Uh, the worst case scenario is that something would happen one day, and I'm out of work, and I might have to go overseas, in fact, mm. or somewhere to work. Mm. So it, we knew about that. It wasn't it wasn't something as if we hadn't discussed. But mm. then, of course, when it happens, it is very confronting, mm. um, and 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 especially, you know. But the, the bottom line is, if you're in a, you know, I mean, sometimes people will use that opportunity to say, all right, well, that's it. I've had a gut full. I don't like my industry anyway, mm. and I'm going to mm. try to do something else. Mm. Um, that was never an issue for me. I mean, I, I liked what I did. Um, I, I think even looking at it from a long-term point of view, it was still the profession that I could earn more money with even if I was to swap it to another career. And there was mm. nothing that I really wanted to do anyway. Mm. So I think yeah, you, do, you do have to hang in. You do have to hang in. And you, you, you just need to have a good hard look and see if you're doing anything silly that's caused you to be in that situation. I mean, in our situation, it's really just the environment. In yeah. fact, the both two times that this happened, it wouldn't have mattered, you know, whether whether you were the best in your field, you would have been out of work. You know, it, it's, it's just the luck of the draw. Mm. You know, if you happen to have a contract that continued on through that time, you were lucky. But if it terminated in that period, you'd be dead in the water like everybody else. Mm. And in fact, I had a lot of people guys with experience, some guys with a couple of degrees who are out of work, and you could see these guys getting depressed and saying to me, mm. well, Sam, what's wrong with me? Am I not mm. good enough? I said, mate, mm. you're, you're more than damn good enough. The work's not out there. If the work's not out there, the work's not out there. So mm. you've got to accept that. So. And so what was the – sorry, I interrupted you before you could tell yes. us about the second rough time. Second main one, yes, there was a, a roundabout – after Y2K, so uh, you, I don't know, you should be old enough to remember that, <laughs> Joanna. <laughs> I, do, I do, I do. I remember it very yeah. clearly. Right. Well, for IT companies, of course, there was a flurry of activity in you know those couple of years before the year 2000 because of the, the two-digit dates converting over, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So what happened there was a lot of companies were forced to um, reluctantly bring forward budgets that they probably had planned, you know, in 2001, 2002. Mm. They had to bring all those budgets forward to, to cope with this problem with the with the two-digit date. Mm. So there's a flurry of activity, and, and as predictable, uh, once uh, Y2K was over, so, you know, about 30th of June, you know, 2001, things started to slow down. Mm. So um, there was definitely, here in Perth, there was definitely a severe downturn from 2001 through about 2004, 2005, Wow, that's uh, a long so that was time. four years. Yeah, it was it was very severe. And in my case, I had also a couple of years before that uh, decided to buy out my remaining business partner. There was two of us at that point, so he was going to retire. And, and this was about three years earlier before any of this happened. We'd nominated um, uh, June uh, 30th of June 2000 as as the year that that he would finish work and I would pay him out. So I had just finished doing that and then, of course, the year after, bang, a great big hole with the Y2K. So so that was interesting. Wow. But, um, yes. And and so how did you get through at that time? So, I I mean... Very, very tough. Yeah, very, very tough. 
Tell us a little bit about that. So at that point, you obviously would have had staff by then. And yes. I presume, yes, did have staff. you know, quite a bit of a contracting workforce as yes. well. So did that mean you, you had to make positions redundant and, you know, reduce the workforce or...? Well, that, that's that's one of the things. I mean, everything started to shrink, of course. So the yeah. number of contractors that we had on, they were all shrinking for their own reasons that there was no work. So mm, again, mm, mm. nothing, there was not, you know, you do a lot of soul searching in, in the, it was a total of about four or five years. You do a lot of soul searching and think, am I doing anything wrong? You know, have I done anything wrong? Is there anything that I can improve on? Is there anything we do more efficiently? And most of the answers to that was no. It's just circumstances have changed. And what you now need to do is, is to react to it, you know, how quickly or how slowly is up to you. A lot of people will, um, the mechanics, I think, from what I've learned, that you do in those circumstances, and a lot of people react very quickly, is they slash staff, slash costs, mm. slash whatever. I couldn't do that. I mean, my whole life, everything I've done has been organic. It's just growing slowly, growing, you know, whatever. And, and my own thoughts as to what I thought how, how it should be. And I, and I always put myself in the situation of what would I like to happen if that was me? What would you mm. like do unto others as you would unto yourself? Mm. And I, the thought of just sacking some of my loyal guys, just, mm. I couldn't, I couldn't do it. Probably to my detriment, in fact, because there probably was some people who probably should have been let go. Um, they weren't probably always the best of employees anyway, and maybe that was an opportunity to probably, <laughs> you know, to to say, well, you know, I, I really need to be loyal to the really good ones and mm. maybe, you know, whatever. But I, I couldn't do that. So I hung on to staff mm. probably with great detriment um, uh, to, our, to myself, I guess. But I, look, I can tell you, no, we never – retrenched anybody what i did do is when people left i didn't replace them yeah right. and you look some of the people who you know the people who understood what we were going through and and knew that it wasn't anyone's fault it's just the way it was and mm. as far as i was concerned they always had a job as long as you know we could make things work mm. we would do it and and getting back to my guy who had stayed with me all this time i mean he was a guy could have been easily easily poached in that time mm. but he but he chose not to he he understood what we were doing and and so I, I never actually retrenched anybody but in hindsight i think if you were struggling and you saw you know i i guess that's what people do i now understand a little bit better why they do it because mm. ultimately if you want to survive there is serious risk that the whole lot can go under mm. and if you go under then it's not just you that are out of work it's everyone else that's out of work yeah. so there is a bit of a responsibility there but it just depends on how you view the world but um i was happy to just do it by natural attrition but there was certainly in hindsight some people that yeah i think you know mm. maybe um <laughs> they could have been candidates, but, uh, but, but that's just the way it was. Hindsight so is a beautiful thing, thing, though, isn't it? Hindsight is a beautiful thing. Well, <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it is. It is. No, but look, no, I, I don't regret, though. I don't regret. That yeah. my, my decision's always been made with, you know, information you have at hand at the time and, and your personal attitude towards those things. So I don't, I don't regret it. But then I guess turning this into, you know, the sorts of advice that you can see now from your experiences in dealing with those tough times for, for business owners yeah. now that are doing it tough, 
what a, I, I guess one of the insights we're seeing is perhaps, you know, take a look at staff and see yeah. whether or not there are candidates for, you know, staff that aren't lifting the business up in, you know. Exactly. Exactly. Look, I think one of the things that I've always had, and I, I would say to my staff quite a bit, especially when it came to pay rises, was like, you, you need to be aware, you know, we're a relatively small company here and it's like, what we have here is a combined effort. Imagine a big, big rainwater tank, and we've got a, a funnel coming in there bringing water into this rainwater tank. And around that tank, there's about 10 or 20 holes, little quarter-inch holes. Mm. Um, each one of those is an employee. And so there's water draining out of this tank, and mm. there's this big funnel that comes in. Each one of those drips that, that are taking water out of the tank needs to be responsible to be putting in more water than the drip that they're taking out. Mm. And if you don't know or understand that, then what's going to happen is this tank is eventually going to go dry mm. and you, you're not going to exist as a drip. There's no water coming out. So you have to put in more than's coming out. And of what goes in, me as a responsible business owner needs to make sure that there's enough coming in to keep us all going and there's enough each year to give you that little bit extra, which is your salary increase or whatever, whatever. Mm. So you need to be part of that. If you're only just worried about taking water out, taking water out and never and not worrying about how the world works, about the water getting in there, well then, you know, maybe you shouldn't be here. Mm. And that and I think that's that you know, say all my guys felt part of it. And so a lot of the decisions that we would make would be, look, it's not we would have some opportunities sometimes where there was some work that probably wasn't as desirable that we would want. But if the client was strategic and, you know, if I'd have to make a sacrifice with Saturday guys, look, I know that the area direction you're going is here, but look, this is not, this is not going to be a long time. I need my best man to go in there for at least three or six months, just establish credibility, make sure. And then we can put someone a little bit more suitable to that position, even though you might be slightly overqualified for it now. Mm. You know, let's do that. And the guys would understand that for the, for their overall benefit and protection, as well as the overall benefit and protection of the company to be able to provide you with the salary and the stability that you want. Mm. So that's, yeah, I mean, that's that's just one way of, of looking at it. Sounds like you had some really good communication with your staff. How did you learn this? I mean, did you do any no, no, no. education in leadership or no. management or business skills? No, no, <laughs> no, none at all, none at all, none at all. It's just, just self reflection I, I i've got to admit um mm. i'm not a heavy sleeper so i was only sleep about four or five hours a night anyway. wow um in going to bed at night especially during those four or five years i was just consumed by looking at things and trying to figure out how they work and why they work and what would i as an employee what would i want and trying to try to explain to people um, what we're trying to do and, and sort of be, you know, like part of a family really and just mm. sort of say, look, we're all in this together. I'm happy to pay, you know, if some guy came to me and said, look, Sam, I want to earn $100,000 a year, mate, I'm very, very happy for you to earn one hundred and fifty. Mm. But you need to find a way where you're, you're value to the company, where you can bring in at least two or three times that amount of money. Mm. So that, you know, I'm willing to pay you whatever the hell you want. I'd like to see you earn two or three hundred thousand. But you've got to understand mm. that that can't happen if you're not bringing in multiple times more than that. Mm. And then, you know, it's up to me then to make sure that we're able to hold on to that money and that I keep my promises to you as a person who's been able to do that. And that's a two-way street. I've mm. got to provide you with opportunity. I've got to provide you with education. 
I've got to provide you with the guidance to be able to achieve. Mm. And your, you know, your reward for that will be to get your salary you want. My reward is to grow the, the business and to then be able to put some of the profits back into you. So, I, no, I didn't get that from mm. any courses or, do you know, any one-minute manager courses. No, I didn't. <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> these, these were... These were these were sweat equity in, in, in place of sleep conclusions. <laughs> and that's a wrap-up for our episode with Sam DeLongis. As a quick recap, in this episode we talk about Sam's background. Having come to Australia as a baby with his family from Italy at the end of the Second World War, He also talked about his humble beginnings as a country boy who came to Perth and became an office boy in a mining company, where he worked hard and worked his way up to being among its top employees at the forefront of the evolving field of information technology to then start his business trilogy. Sam also talked about the motivation behind his strong work ethic and how this mindset shaped his approach in motivating his own employees. And finally, we close this episode out with an insightful discussion on Sam's encounters with two particularly difficult moments in the business and how he weathered through these storms. If you liked what you heard today, please pop over to podcast on your iPhones or Stitcher for Android and hit subscribe to be the first to know when we have a new episode out. On our show notes, we also provide an option for you to download a copy of the full transcript to this episode if you'd like to read it in more detail. Just head over to our website at www.talkinglaw.com.au and look for this episode 49. Now, if you'd like to hear more of Sam's story, check out our sister podcast, The Deal Room, for our three-part series with Sam, where he talks in detail about how he grew his business, his experience going through a business sale process, and his insights on life after sale. I think this is really useful listening for anyone who is growing a business at the moment because it gives some really down-to-earth insights from the coalface of someone who has been there and done that in terms of many of the issues that you're probably facing in your business and also shows how it can all be wrapped up in a successful exit at the end of the day. So if you want to hear those episodes, then just head over to our website at www.thedealroompodcast.com and look out for episodes 33, 34 and 35. Or head over to The Deal Room Podcast using the search facility within podcasts on your iPhone or in Stitcher or your other players on Android in order to get updates straight to your mobile devices. Well, that's it. Thanks again for listening in. This has been Joanna Oki and Talking Law, a podcast brought to you by our commercial legal practice, Aspect Legal. See you next time. Thanks for listening to Talking Law. Tune in next time for more smart legal tips and tricks to keep you clear of those legal landmines. If you want to get a download of today's show notes, head over to talkinglaw.com.au. Information in this podcast is general in nature, not legal advice. If you want advice for your business, visit talkinglaw.com.au. 